You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Hello and welcome to another episode of McGuire Woods Across the Table podcast. I'm Amber Walsh, chair of the McGuire Woods Healthcare Department. I'm joined today as my co-host by Holly Buckley, co-chair of our firm's healthcare and life sciences industry team. Holly and I are thrilled today to be hosting the second of two episodes focusing on the hospital industry and relevant things for private equity investors to know about this critical giant of the U.S. healthcare system. Today, we are visiting with Dr. Jay Robinson, Administrator of Kaiser Permanente Northwest. He will be speaking with us on the evolving role of the hospital in the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Robinson, thank you very much for joining us today. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your practice, and your role at Kaiser at Northwest. Thank you. Thanks. And it's great to be here with both you, Amber and uh, Holly. I'm Jay Robinson, and I am a clinical psychologist by background. I really fashion myself as a clinician and never dreamed that I would be, when I started my studies, that I would be completely into operations and to administration. I've spent time with the Department of Veterans Affairs as a clinician and then, then moved into clinical leadership and then finally into administration there. I have worked in Memphis, Tennessee with Methodist Lebanon Healthcare as a hospital president there running a hospital in the Whitehaven section of Memphis. I spent time in Chicago running St. Joseph Hospital as uh, part of the Ascension Corporation. And then most recently, I have been here in the Portland area for about a little over a year and I'm the administrator for Kaiser Sunnyside and Kaiser Westside Hospitals. Sunnyside is a 302-bed hospital located in the in Clackamas County, right outside of Portland. And Sunnyside is a 122-bed hospital located on the west side of the city, uh, closer to Beaverton. And I've been, like I said, with Kaiser for a little over a year and a half, but enjoy the organization and feel like it brings a lot of value to to health care. Well, that is a great uh, background. Really appreciate that. And that's a great segue, actually, into having you please describe a little bit more about the Kaiser Permanente family of entities. I know a lot of private equity investors are familiar with Kaiser, but may not appreciate the hospitals versus the medical group. And then, of course, the health plan, which is really unique. Thanks for bringing that up. And it is a unique model, and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of the integrated model. And, and I just call out that a lot of my experience has been with fee-for-service. And so a very different model that I'm a part of now that I think makes sense in, in a lot of ways. As you point out, there are three different entities. There's the hospitals that I'm a part of, and there are 39 hospitals with Kaiser located in California and Hawaii and right outside of Portland, we call it the Northwest, but the the two hospitals that I'm responsible for. And then we have regions around the country, but all the regions don't necessarily have hospitals. So there are regions in the Mid-Atlantic, in Georgia, Colorado, Washington State, 
Hawaii, as we said, Northwest, which includes my area, and then you have Northern Cal and, and Southern Cal. And each of those regions has a plan, so it's an insurance plan, so we're, we're an insurance company as well. And then we also have a very unique relationship with our medical group. It's kind of an exclusive relationship with the Permanente Medical Group, and they have different, depending on the the market that you're in, they have different names, but in general, they have an exclusive relationship to provide care to our members. And I talk about it as an integrated model because, and it's something that I really believe in because the focus is on how do we keep our members healthy? And it's kind of unique as a hospital administrator because in a lot of ways, we de-emphasize the hospital under the Kaiser model. We really want people to be in the least restrictive setting. And we try to, through our access initiatives, to make sure that we're addressing your needs well before you have to come to the hospital. But as we know, sometimes conditions worsen, and if that happens, the hospitals are there to address. And I think, you know, if you think about most healthcare organizations, whether it's Kaiser or some of your, even your fee-for-service systems, there really has become a focus on how do we keep people healthy? How do we keep you out of the hospital? Hospital care is expensive. We know hospital care can be dangerous, and so we don't want you in the hospital. You're seeing a big effort now to, in some ways, de-emphasize hospital care so that most hospital care in the future you're going to see is going to be intensive care like ICU-level care, maybe step-down care. I would expect that hospitals of tomorrow will be a lot smaller than they are today. And what do you see as one of the particularly effective ways that hospitals themselves can play a role in making themselves less important? It's an interesting dichotomy there. Obviously, with the value-based care, that's a huge Mm -hmm. part of it. You mentioned specifically, obviously, the difference from fee-for-service. But from your different roles that you've had around the country and different types of systems, we'd love to hear what you think are some of the most effective ways hospitals have made themselves less important, but with intention. That is an absolutely fantastic question. I think in a couple ways hospitals do that. One, I think we try to spend a lot of time educating patients about their health. So whether it's an infection, whether it's diabetes, whether it's congestive heart failure, we really spend a lot of energy educating patients and their families about their conditions and how they can play a role in staying out of the hospital. I think another thing that hospitals do now better than they did when I started is connecting, making really deliberate efforts to connect patients with primary care, with even navigators in some instances, where there are people who are focused on outreach to patients who are at highest risk for readmission. And so it's not unlikely to see a congestive heart failure clinic where we proactively outreach to patients who have congestive heart failure. We measure their weight. We do help them understand their symptoms so that they can avoid having to go to an emergency room or or to a hospital. So I think that that education, the providing access, even having sometimes navigators or, or case managers who do outreach are just several ways that hospitals affirmatively try to keep themselves, take themselves out of business, if you will, because they, they really want to make sure that patients are, are healthy and can remain in the, the home setting. 
one other thing I, I think it's important to point out is, and it's something we've been experimenting with and with Kaiser, and that is some of the, if you will, hospital at home initiatives where we essentially try to provide that level of care for certain conditions in a patient's home. And it's a, a model that is becoming more popular around the country because we realize, and particularly through COVID, that there's a lot that we can monitor and observe via teleconferencing. And so you're seeing now a proliferation, I think, of these models where people are actually in hospitals in their homes. So they may be monitored, their, their vitals can be monitored from a centralized hub. Staff can check in on patients daily. Imagine the convenience of being able to stay in your home while you're addressing a medical condition. And I think you'll see more of that as we go into the future and people become more comfortable with not having to be in a hospital. And one other I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, and that is a lot of the work that's occurring all across the industry with total joints. Again, when I started, if you had a hip replacement, that was a three, four-day hospital stay. Now, that's a same-day procedure. Total joints are being done in ambulatory surgery centers. I think you will see more of that. So that's a a situation where what was a four-day hospital stay, four or five days in some instances, is now same day. You don't require a hospital bed for that level patient. And the outcomes are good. So I think, again, as medicine progresses, techniques get better. We are able to reimagine what a hospital needs to be going forward because you won't need a hospital bed for your total joint patient anymore. That's great. I'd like to segue a little bit into a discussion around private investment in the healthcare space and how you perceive hospital and health system leadership. How do they view this? So we've seen, for example, a lot of investment in ancillary businesses, physician practices, and otherwise. How do you think health system leadership views that? I can't speak for all health system leadership. I think it probably runs a range of opinions. I would say it ranges for, on one end very skeptical about investors coming into the industry and potentially driving so hard for efficiencies that it it calls into question how you maintain quality. And I think on the other end of the spectrum you have people who welcome the infusion of capital because healthcare is so expensive. And so finding a willing partner is good in some instances for healthcare entities because you need that type of investment. Clearly, there are instances where it works very well. I think some of the cancer treatment centers have demonstrated that. I think there are examples where it doesn't go as well and where the focus on margin performance runs really close up against quality. And I think that's where you have to to strike that balance. I would say there's a middle of the road solution that makes a lot of sense. I think we all as as a society are invested in having a healthy citizenry and a healthy workforce and a healthy population. And so any infusion of capital to support that is helpful. And honestly, we know that because of health care being so expensive, we, we're going to need to have other streams of revenue to keep current with equipment, with 
structures just so that you can provide a quality service. Thank you. And has Kaiser, and specifically in your local market, been impacted by private equity investments that are maybe competing, or maybe you've had the opportunity to joint venture with some private equity-backed businesses? How have the two, the health system and private equity-backed businesses, intersected in your market? Again, I apologize a little because I'm relatively new to this market. So immediately, I, I can't think of instances, particularly with Kaiser in this market, where that's that's played a role. I could tell you in Chicago, it's a very common thing. I, I just came from that market. And so you would see where well, you guys are. And so you see private equity going into ambulatory surgery centers, cancer treatment centers, some hospitals. And I think there's a place for it. To be successful, I think everyone needs to go into such ventures with their eyes wide open, understand the needs of each stakeholder. I think that's how you can avoid the unfortunate instances where, as I said, the focus on margin pressure really impacts the ability to deliver quality. Do you think that the move to value-based care is going to some extent kind of close the question in terms of margins versus quality in that margins are going to be driven by the ability to deliver quality care once value-based care is more fulsomely implemented? That's a great question as well, because heretofore, the impact of value-based care on large hospital systems is de minimis. It really, and I hate to sound cavalier, I mean, some of it became almost a rounding error, if you will, just to impact what's at risk with value-based purchasing. If, as you say, we do get to a point where it's a substantial piece of revenue, I think you're completely right in that people will, that the gap will close and it will be such a financial impact that you have to deliver quality and if you want to to make margin. But it's just, again, heretofore, the total revenue that was at risk for a lot of healthcare systems was not a great number. I don't think a lot of people say this out loud, but definitely five years ago, we were paying attention to it. Because a lot of the premise of value-based purchase is the right thing to do, but the amount of revenue at risk was not that great that people would would lose sleep over it. Got it. And so if I had asked most healthcare leaders at the end of last year what they thought the biggest challenge of 2020 was going to be, I don't think very many of them would have said a worldwide health pandemic. Barring something totally unforeseen like that, what do you see in the next kind of one to three years as the biggest uh, game changers? Well, I think there's going to continue to be a push towards, you know, reducing variation. Consumers are becoming so clear about what they want, access and high quality at a low price. Who wouldn't want that? And I think solving that is what healthcare leaders are going to have to be able to understand. I think there is a real place for private equity in partnering with leaders to help them understand how to access capital and how to access it in a way that we can answer that value proposition that our patients and are so demanding, that is the quality and access and affordability. I think so driving quality is one. 
The second piece, just and it's a part of quality, and that's patient experience. People want good access to care that they feel good about and that they are not treated as a number, if you will. And so I think there's a will be a, an increasing focus on patient experience. It's always been a, a part of value-based purchasing, but I, I still think that is something that the industry has a ways to go to catch up. In a lot of ways, I hate to use this example, Google has set a expectation about how fast you get results and, and how quickly, and people want that. And so I think we want that now experience that's high quality in the way that people want to receive it. The other piece, and this was starting before COVID, and I definitely think it got accelerated because of COVID, telemedicine. Telemedicine, I think, is an area where we now are understanding because of the pandemic, we can do a lot with it, and people like it in a lot of ways. That's something that we need to hit the accelerator with and further understand how we can deliver care through telemedicine. I think it's still a lot of untapped potential there. I couldn't agree more on telemedicine. It's been uh, one of those things through the the COVID year that has been certainly, I think, a welcome change. It's been the ability to access healthcare from our, our homes. I agree. The other piece I was going to mention, and I think it's important call out, and that is, as an industry, we have to continue to focus on health equity, making sure that all members of our society have good access to care that's high quality. I really fear that overlooking that issue puts us as a society at risk because not all members of our society are able to access care and and that's, that's high quality. It has obviously the impacts of decreasing life expectancy, making someone not viable to participate in our economy. And so I think that's another point that savvy hospital leaders will be focused on. That makes a lot of sense. A number of things that you said today, it struck me as interesting in terms of your background as a psychologist in the way that you talk about how healthcare delivery changes, how the mode of receiving healthcare has changed. And there's probably a lot of benefit for you in terms of your training and then your role as a, an administrator of a big strategic healthcare system and that so much of this is about teaching people to do things differently. And I'm just curious how much you lean on your training and and your background in terms of your position now. Thank you for that. I do. I really do. I mean, a lot of healthcare is how you help people work together as a team. So being able to assess skill sets, being able to assemble highly effective, efficient teams, is critical. And my training helps me do that in in a lot of ways. It also, I think my training lends itself well to issues like employee engagement. And we know that highly engaged employees are less likely to make mistakes. Their retention is higher and companies that they work for have better productivity and better financial performance. And so I think that aspect of my training has served me very well in trying to drive employee engagement. Healthcare continues to be a team sport. To the extent that you can put together an effective team, you'll be successful at delivering quality healthcare. 
great. Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for your time today. It's been insightful hearing your thoughts. I know our listeners will agree. Also, thank you to my co-host, Amber Walsh. This is Holly Buckley. This is the Across the Table podcast series, which is a series of timely and relevant discussions around healthcare, healthcare private equity, and finance. And we look forward to you joining us on a future episode. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.